The following broadcast was produced by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco as part of our Lighthouse Learning Library. The road that was our stagecoach road went across what is Mount Vida Road and up the other side up to what was Solid Comfort Home that was uh, two Germans that had a health resort up there at the same time that this was Johannesburg. It's just isolated. It's not with other redwoods. I mean, that's pretty unusual. The reason is that uh, it's more than 2,000 years old, that particular redwood that's up at that. Um, She's showing pictures of it. Um, uh, These are a pile of pictures from... Your pictures are Early days. Fabulous is me and my mom and me and my dad when I was, what, four years old at the swimming pool. Um, We're looking at a picture here that is that across from where I was getting the obsidian, on the other side of the tree, a stream, back in the 1860s when the redwoods were logged here, there's a stump big enough that while we lived here, there was still a house on top of it. Mm. And it was a nice cottage on top of a stump. Wow. Like a giant, giant, giant stump. Yeah, yeah. Wow. that's how big the redwoods were. And there's the stream I used to play in, and it had a um, ramp that went from the high of the big stump over to the side of the hill oh, really? to go over oh, it uh-huh. to get, you know, you had to, because wow. it was cut. Off, uh, I would say, so at ten or twelve feet high, yeah. so you had to have it go across. Oh, my lady, I see that. Does the creek have a name? No, but the lake has a name, and it used to have a beautiful sign on it. And I want to put a sign on it, Lake Lacoya, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it has a certain kind of um, characteristic uh, printing style oh, uh-huh. that would go on it. Right. <laughs> um, was the, the lake, you know, at this point in time, isn't a lake you'd want to go jump in. It seems a little, you know, whatever, well, mossy. it needs to was be it, dredged again. Right, it does. It hasn't did, been dredged for too long, and that's you, why it what, has... What, did people swim in it? After it's dredged, uh-huh. uh, yes. Uh, do you, you would not have maybe met... Uh, Paul, but Paul has been one of the longtime counselors here uh-huh. for Tony, and he came here as a little boy, and at times when it was dredged, uh, the campers swam in it. Mm-hmm. it uh, the reason it has so much growth and it's filling in, gradually that growth on top of the lake will fill it in, and it will become sure. a meadow. meadow. And uh, I have pic- pictures there of when it's been dredged. Yeah, I saw those. Yeah. That, uh, it ha- it, what it has to be is that at the end of camp, you cut the stream off up by the tin barn and make it all go over to Rick's stream. And then it dries out in the heat of August and September. And then uh, before, they just used to, made a dirt ramp into it, got a pickup truck, and um, borrowed or rented a backhoe and scooped it up and put it all that nice fertile, fertile, fertile uh, dirt in the truck and drove it up and dropped it up the hill and dug up some more and dropped it up and dropped it up until it's not so shallow that it gets so warm that that's why there's growth all over the top of it. And another thing that we used to do is we had cattails around the uh, island and where the stream comes in 
And cattails are one of or the best filtering systems for uh, lake water. But then the last time that the lake was dredged and they were dug out, new ones weren't obtained and put back in the mud again. So... um, so the fire. The fire is something that I, I wish that I, I hope that the DVD that we, DVDs that we make, and I think one will be uh, going through camp and where where things were in the past and where they are now and how that will be and that would be a unit. And then I think another one would be storytelling, and and storytelling. There's so many wonderful tales that I've told to campers over the years, and one is the fire, but I'd like that to be very widely known because so many people have arrived since the fire. Um, My father and I uh, were down in Napa because camp was over, the blind campers had left, it's the time when we're getting all of the mattress pads put inside for winter shelter and all the beds are being folded up mm-hmm. the tents are taken down uh, my job was to have long tables down by where the current fire circle is and all of the sweatshirts and shoes and jackets and everything that got left behind mm-hmm. would be piled there and all the children had all the boys had to have their names in their clothes and it used to be that you could buy a hundred or five hundred names on little white strips with you still can, <laughs> you can, still can with it embroidered on it, uh-huh. and then you sew them. And my job was to sort them all out in piles, fold them up, and take butcher paper and wrap them up, and then address them. And we mailed them all back. Wow! And so uh, this is a time when camp is beginning to to be closed down and uh, the trees, the maples are turning yellow and the poplar trees around the lake are turning yellow and I'm thinking oh, it's almost over for another year. The three months is up and we go back to Berkeley and school and I just my heart is beginning to sink. Mm. I just love camp passionately. So my father and I were down in town buying food because there's no more camp food. Uh, you know, we need to go to the Italian grocery store with its uh, wood plank floors that they clean every day at the end of the day by pushing wood chips over them with oil in them to keep the dust off of the floors. And we're coming back towards camp, and we look up and we see a plume of smoke coming up. And it's a straight plume of smoke. And we look at each other in this old car, (laughs) making it up the hill. That is not a planned burn. That is a wildfire. And we're thinking, where is the wildfire? Trying to situate it as we're going around the curves. What position is it? It's below camp, we can see, because it's on the east. And uh, it's a significant pillar of smoke. Mm. And so it's happened just since we've gone down to uh, get the groceries. Mm. And it can't be good. It's the end of summer. Everything's tinder dry. 
So we get up to camp, and there's two phones in camp. There's one in the inn where the lodge is now that uh, we had where we were living, and there's one down in camp that was in the office next in the curve of redwood trees that are just between the fire circle and the, the dining hall and the flagpole. There's a little circle of redwood trees there, and that was in that little uh, cove. So my dad gets on the phone on the party line, and people are talking, and the people on the party line that are down on Dry Creek Road, it's down here, and it's 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 taken off. And uh, so my dad, you know, we got situated, and soon it was dark, so he said, well, we'll go see what's happening. So we went, not the direction you've come from Napa, but we continued on over... Um, north uh, to where you can connect with um, the Oakville grade and Dry Creek. And we went down to the base area of where this property ended. And I don't know whether there are any video that I could get of a forest fire that would replicate anything so people could really, in the documentary, feel it. But we stood on that road, the Dry Creek Road, on the farthest side that we could get, and the fire was going away from us uphill, because you picture Dry Creek is at the bottom of Mount Vedder. That's where it goes into gradually into flat land. And so it's going uphill away from us. And entire trees, a fir tree that's more mature and huge, it would explode in flames and it would just the whole thing would just go and the whole tree would go up and just burn and crash to the ground and the trees just burning and crashing and the fire the crash the crashing sound and the fire sound were so loud that my dad and I each tried cupping our hands over the other person's ear and yelling at the top of her lungs and you could not hear it over the sound of the fire. It was, and it, being away from it and it's going up the hill across the way, it felt like it was going to burn all the skin off of you. It was so hot. It was just blisteringly hot. And uh, you know it's going up toward camp and all of the area north of camp can't do anything at night, but my father knew a lot about fire, and there have been previous fires, not so close and not so big, and so he was wise about it, and he knew very well there weren't good fire trails, and that they had to get bulldozers, and there had been so many fires that summer, this is September, first week of September, 1945, Mm -hmm. that the people that were anywhere trained around here in in fires had been drawn off to other fires. They weren't here. They'd already been taken away because of the shortage of people who were firefighting, fighter trained. So he felt it was safe to go to bed that night because he says uh, it will calm down uh, in the nighttime. What we have to worry about is tomorrow afternoon because the fire will begin by the heat of the day to continue uphill. 
and it makes its own firestorm and its own winds. And it does make fantastic winds because the heat tearing uphill and up into the... Uh, you could see the, the, it, the embers and everything are just flying up into the sky. So uh, it turned out by t- talking on the party line that it was sort of going north of here. And uh, my job was to get on my horse and ride out to the Mount Vader Road and go north to a certain place, and you would picture it well. There's a certain place where you can sort of, as you go around a curve and down, you can see the range of mountains. And it's some wine, wine grapes there and a winery. And so I were to ride out there and see how close the fire was and come back and tell everybody. And in camp there was my mother and my sister and I. And then the director that helped my father uh, with the camp, he was there with his wife and his son. And we each had a uh, No, let's see, there was... Yeah, two cars, and my dad took the car and left, and we didn't see him for three days while he was fighting the fire. Oh, my God. He didn't come back to sleep. He just was gone fighting the fire. By phone, we learned that he was terribly frustrated because they'd gotten uh, some bulldozing equipment, and he kept saying, you have to build it. Here's the fire. You have to build it way up there because of the speed it will come this afternoon and they build it too close and every time it was jumped and he was very frustrated and he said all of the old timers you know <laughs> the Italian old timers that you were saying were they together they they knew each other they knew what to do but the newbies on the mountain and listened to them so I wrote out periodically and the first day it was okay. I would come back and I'd say, no, it seems to be going uh, north of here. We're okay. Second day it seemed to be, yeah, uh, we're okay. Uh, it's okay, we can go to sleep. And the next afternoon on the third day, I, it was blazingly hot. Not from the fire yet, but just it was a hot time. And, of course, it, and everything is so dry. So there were, of course, no planes going over to drop any fire retardant. That wasn't happening back then. Uh, we were at the swimming pool, my mother, my sister, and I, just trying to cool off. And it, it's hard to describe in a way that it's believable because it, it happens so fast. We were there, we were in the pool, it was blue sky, and this massive smoke cloud came over us and embers started falling on us. I was still in the pool. I, I hadn't even made it to the edge of the pool to, to climb out of the of the stairs. And it's falling down. Embers, you know, five and six inches long. Burning embers falling down on us. And the, the everything is cr- uh, gl- glitter. I don't know how to say the light flashing in this uh, smoke so that it's like it's got all different colors of oranges and corals and roses and everything all moving in this smoke that's over our heads. And, of course, the smell of smoke is just acrid and 
pungent and you feel like it's just every breath you breathe in is the smoke. And the ground, I look down as we're trying to grab our things and, uh, and walk up to uh, the our inn up here. Uh, it's copper colored and it's all moving. The ground from the sun shining through the smoke is all this moving copper colored. And we're trying to get up here as fast as we can. And my mo- mother said, okay, you get your clothes on, you go down to um, uh, the horse corral where the horses were and get Slim. Slim was the name of our wrangler. And you and he get the horses out. And uh, what you do is you ride up to the summit, see if you could get one of the uh, neighbors up there to let you leave the horses uh, in a stable that they have. We'll meet you at the summit. But I'm going with my mother with my sister down to lower camp because the um, I guess it was the director's wife, son, and and her husband was fighting the fire. Some other lady was down there with them, and they had the only car because my father had taken the car to go to wherever he'd gone to the fire, and so my only my mother and my sister's way out of camp would be to get in their car, and she said, "We'll drive out and we'll meet you up at the summit." So Slim was a a wonderful character. He had lost some toes being frozen off in Alaska on one of his adventures. So he had the real cowboy boots, and he kind of hobbled. And and he, uh, you know, had a he had a a ten gallon hat, but it wasn't for dress. It was all sweaty (laughs) and black around the the rim, and he'd worn it for years and. Uh, but he was a real cowboy, and he liked the boys, and the boys liked him. The horses liked him, too. Uh, so I said, the plan is we got to get the horses out of here. I'm to take half of them. You're to take half of them. And we're to ride them up, and there's a place that uh, has a prune orchard. I'd pick prunes there as a kid and uh, see whether we can leave the horses there. So what we did was we put all, every horse had their own saddle and their own blanket and uh, then a bridle and then a halter so that we could um, take them with their halter and just have the bridles over their, the pummel. They were all Western saddles. Uh, no, actually, we had two saddles that were uh, cavalry saddles. Uh, the rest were all Western <laughs> And we had two cavalry horses, Bugler and Reveille. So I I got on silver, and um, I had three horses here and three horses here. I've changed my mind. No, I didn't use a halter. I used the reins because I remember putting my fingers through the reins. So I had three and three there, trying to be able to... (laughs) deal with my own reins on the horse I'm riding, and they hated it. The horses are very emotional creatures because they're prey animals, and therefore they spook easily. That's why they sleep standing up. You know that? They sleep standing up because they're prey animals. And when they fall asleep, when they fall asleep, their knees lock. As soon as they wake up, their knees unlock chemically, and that's for them to escape. But this was, they'd never done this before and they didn't like it. So Slim went first on the horse he always rode. I came second. He had three in each hand. So we had 
Each ha- we're taking six and riding one. So we had 14 horses that summer. And I really, I, I felt that the horses were going to pull my arms out of their sockets. They're all pushing and fighting and, you know, unhappy with each other and not wanting to be pulled along. I'm going to ask you to do that too. Great, thank you. And uh, I'm making too many ands because I wasn't prepared to make a recording. I should have thought about leaving ands out. (laughs) Can you bleep ands? I don't know whether this may need to have a a flash, but let's see. Um, So uh, we we got up to the summit. And uh, that was a great achievement. It was a long distance that day. Uh, I don't know if you can even imagine it. Especially under all the duress and those horses I didn't know whether my father was alive. Yeah. Mm. He'd been gone long enough that I, uh, I was very concerned that he would be so tired. And he was such a... Um, and athletics, such a risk taker. Mm. He so counted on his body to do anything that he demanded it do. And I could just see that he might be the one that wouldn't come back. Um, yes, I would love it. She's going to take a picture of it. I'll look at you. <laughs> Is it going to take it? Yeah, yeah, it took them. Yeah, enough light. Okay, was there enough light? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have to have one smiling at Tony, too. Uh, Love Tony. Um, The thing that was really deeply concerning me, actually more than thinking about my my, uh, father at that moment, was it took us a long time trying to pull those horses along. And my mother had said that that she would be right out in the car with my sister and the other people. And certainly, if they were driving, they should have passed us. Mm. And they were not passing us. And there's only one road out of camp. And if you have embers falling on camp, there's the possibility of even fires starting ahead of when the main blaze comes uh, in the dry brush. And I just, I couldn't imagine how could they have not gotten out. And it was only explained later that Alice, the director's wife, was canning things and she didn't want to leave until she got all of the jars canned and preserved. So we had to wait because my mother didn't drive and they had to get everybody out and they had to get the car. So I I did ask the people at that house that's just... Come by a house that's a white house here and there's grape, grape vineyard here make a sharp turn, and they got a fence there. And that's the house where we were able to leave all the horses. And then there was no fence there, and Slim and I stood there and waited and waited. And I went back to the house and the lady there, and I said, would you phone? Phone camp. Mm-hmm. It's two longs and a short, and see if they've left. Uh-huh. And she said, I can't get through. The fire's burned there already. Mm-hmm. Oh. She was wrong, 
The car hasn't come and the fire has burned there already. Maybe my father's gone, my mother and my sister are all gone. Standing on the side of the road. Just just become a teenager. And um, at some point they putted up in the car and they were okay. And the camp, when they had left, it still was there. It had not burned. It was a false alarm on the operator that says, Number, please. Mm-hmm. So we walked the rest away up the hill to the summit, which was vineyards, but there were no fences. There was no gate there. It has a big fancy gate now. And we sat there on the ridge, and they, um, the boy that was my age, that was the director's son, had brought a, a big knife like Crocodile Dundee had the big knife. Yes, and uh, uh, they had brought a watermelon. (laughs) So we cut up the watermelon as we looked down, and we really, from that vantage point, could not tell as we watched the fire race up the hill, up Mount Vader, whether it had taken camp out or not. You just could not tell. There are too many irregularities in the ground, in the terrain, the topography. It really did look like camp could have been gone because it went right on up Mount Vader, up over the top and down the other side, and we watched it. It went that fast that it went from this area up over the top of Mount Vader and down the other side. Do you know how many acres burned in that I've, I've, I've got in mind to try to see if I can pin that down because the acreage estimate goes from 100 acres to 47,000. <laughs> so I don't know whether I can yeah, get a range. But I do think that uh, knowing where it started and knowing where uh, it burned uh, to a large amount and uh, where it burned uphill from there that, and down the other side that I may be able to get people... Uh, with topographical maps to help me estimate mm-hmm. it and see then whether I can find any records that would say something in the range that I'm trying to find. And then that night, somebody invited us to stay at Sergeant Prokofiev's A-frame house that still is down from the summit. So we went down there and slept on the floor. I didn't know whether I had a father. Didn't know I had a mother and a sister. Didn't know whether we had a camp. And they had two yappy dogs that <laughs> yapped and yapped. It wasn't the time to sleep. It was a time, I guess, to just wait. Wait. Next morning, my dad came. He was alive. So we had the essentials. We had the four of us. And dad didn't know either whether camp was here or not. He thought it was because he had. He, I think he. No, I think he knew that probably all of it was here. I don't know whether he knew all of it was here. He knew the main part of camp was saved, but all the acres down below may have been gone because we had. He had over, I think, seven hundred and fifty acres, but he knew the buildings had been saved. And what he had done was he had called actually the sergeant that owned that A-frame 
who uh, was down at Mare Island. And he said, the fire is going to burn camp unless you can get some troops up here. He said, it's headed straight for us, and it's roaring. Can you do it? Can you get us troops? And uh, I guess that was some of the friendships on the hill. He says, I'll get men together. I'll get them up there with equipment as fast as I can. I'll do it as fast as I can. And so my father must have been at the top of Mount Beter Road waiting for them and directing them. There was an apple orchard at the end of the road that used to extend up from where uh, Rick's cab- house is, cabin is. That road used to go straight on up the hill as a dirt road to Montveter, and there was apple orchards up there. And so my dad must have picked a spot that he was going to stop the troops, and they, truck after truck after truck, uh, the estimate at the time was 500 men, all with equipment, that my dad would have been waiting up there and saying, the back fire trail has to start here. And then I guess he must have run down ahead of them, uh, he would have been 45, uh, and keeping them just on the other side of where the small uh, cook's cabin is, just on the other side of that and on down. And I don't know how far he went with them, but I imagine he went down well past where the the uh, chapel is. Then I think he may have just said, go uh, on the north side of the river on the north side of the stream until you hit a road um, which would be Dry Creek Road mm-hmm. and so the first ones uh, went along and they dug the path that is still the path that you go out the uh, kiva and walk to the chapel that's the fire trail there and even when you go out the cook's cabin, that trail is part of the fire trail. And now I have movies, as I was last week, of me and my sister standing in the ashes there at that part, point in the fire trail in color because it was 1945, November. We came back in November to see. Uh, so uh, the first shovels to make bare dirt. And then... Uh, after that, the troops came along and they had the equipment on the, their backs to ignite fire and ignite fire to go away, backfire t- to the uh, firestorm. And then after that, the troops came with uh, water tanks on their backs and they had um, squirters so that they could, anything, flames that went across, they could extinguish them. And so they literally were digging and running and digging and running down till they got to uh, Dry Creek. And I don't think my father went that far. I think he stayed up in this area where the development was and all of the money that he'd put in and where he ran camp. Um, And then they stayed for two or three days. They had enough uh, supplies to stay here, uh, food with them, whatever they needed uh, to survive, and they used the pool, and then they'd go on the trail and go on the trail because um, it kept reburning on this 
campsite of the trail because the roots go, would go uh, underneath the trail and start fires again on this side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it would smolder on this side and then catch fire. So there's days, about three days that they were here. And it had a secure feeling because we knew that if we just didn't let anything cross over, uh, basically under the ground is where it would come from. It was ashes on the other side. It was uh, probably 10 inches of ashes, white ashes, extremely acrid. Has there been a fire in, right around camp since then, as far as you know? No, but there was one at the veterans' home that came up over, and then it instead of coming further, it there's a cliff there, mm-hmm. and it stopped at the cliff because mm-hmm. fire wants to go up. Mm-hmm. Two d- details about the forty-five fire. One is, um, were these Mayor Mayor Island was the Navy? These were servicemen I coming back from the war what, I, just ended the month before? I don't know what... Um, I, I can keep reading and seeing if I can find any more about it and what my... Uh, all those uh, records that I have from my parents. I, I d- took down oral history in, uh, I think it was 1947, and see if I can find anything more um, about that. I... Almost think they're Marines from, and how from does, memory. How does um, your father, who's a camp owner and an academic, how does how does he just call up a base and get five hundred Marines? He knew uh, Sergeant Prokofiev because Sergeant Prokofiev lived in the A-frame that's just on this right. side of the the um, uh, summit, and he knew a lot of people on the hill. And how he knew that particular one, I don't know. But my dad, even though he was a pacifist, um, uh, did join the Navy in World War One. There were a lot of things you can do that you're not at the front. And then during World War Two, he was in the Coast Guard, so he worked for the, uh, the federal government during the day, and he did Coast Guard do- duty during the night, and he had a mattress that he put on the floor of his office in San Francisco to sleep before the next morning. So uh, the next day we came and camp was here. <laughs> and we brought the horses back. Um, and it was a close call. It was a close, close call. And I've I, I thought so many times, Tony, when I bought Bill here, and you said that you had, knew him, you had met him, and I didn't know... How you? I never found out how you knew him. I think it's from previous fire inspections in his earliest days before he transferred over to Sacramento. I think he was one of our inspectors over here. That would come and do the fire clearance for us. He lived in one of my dad's cabins up at La Coya Lodge. And he lived there. Uh, he moved to be in a house, I understand, at Peggy Aaron's. She has several yes, rentals. And it's a little bit... Better and spiffier <laughs> than the. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't have the view because he had a great view from where he was. Um, but Peggy has good views too. I felt for many years that the forest wasn't being kept healthy here, mm-hmm. and there were so many down dead trees, and there aren't enough fire trails, mm-hmm. and there's not enough defensible space. 
And you really took off with it, Tony. You really took off with it. And it hadn't been before you and I met and we talked about it. That was the last great fire Mm -hmm. here. Pope mentioned the Yonville one. And we did have an evacuation of camp in 95, 96. Mm-hmm. But that was out of precautionary because it was, um, I think it was either elementary or junior high program. And you went so to San Francisco. Went to the lighthouse and spent the night down there. And that was just out of precaution in case, like Hope mentioned, how fast that fire could jump mm-hmm. and turn directions. It was not yet here when we went up to the summit. It was afternoon. By dinner evening, it had come from here up over the top of Mount Vedder and gone over the other side. It just galloped. And that's what happens because going uphill, the embers rise up and keep start, starting the firestorm further up of the hill, up the hill before this even can, the, the uh, approaching fire can catch up with it. There was some talk at one of the last fire council meetings that the neighbors used to pitch in their money together and manage the ridge roads up behind oh, really? us here on the eastern side that they mm-hmm. would hire one of the guys up here on the mountain who had a tractor, and they'd pay him whatever, and he mm-hmm. would drive and just keep that those ridge trails. And there is now a movement afoot. We're trying to find state or federal funds to help us protect with the guys of protecting the watershed. That's why there's federal money. Do you remember at all? any? Of no, I don't remember that. I do remember that uh, certainly because there had been uh, other smaller blazes. I mean, um, what is her name? Wilson Watson or something that had a, her house burned just the next property north of here. Knights, that's what it is, Knights. Uh, you know, something like that can get away. So the, the, they called themselves farmers here because some of them had Italian prunes, some of them had apples, uh, and then there were a few vineyards, walnuts, um, they call themselves farmers, and they really did get together on things. But I don't know anything about raising funds. I think that they periodically went out and made trails. Yeah, they, yeah, they made trails together, and they were as concerned about it as anybody could be. Um, there's not enough trail uh, fire trails, and there's not enough clearance of dead wood in the forest. One of the things that I thought was interesting was one of the summers I was here working for you, two people, older ladies, came when we were greeting the buses that were bringing campers here. And one of them had been a child of one of my father's caretakers. And one of them was her friend that used to be able to come up here to camp and visit her girlfriend. I guess they took went to the same school in Napa, took the school bus. And uh, she says she remembers so well that in the nine months that that my father just had a caretaker here, that they would take, keep Nellie here, our plow horse, and they would uh, take Nellie out into, like, by where the chapel is and all that dead wood, and put that, some sort of girdle around Nellie that would, I guess, be around her neck and her front legs that then could have a chain clamped onto it, saw up the timber, like all of that dead wood by the chapel, which is below camp, uh, into pieces, uh, put a chain around it, fasten it to a chain on Nellie, and then Nellie would take out the dead wood Mm -hmm. and put it where it could be taken by the side of the road there, 
so that then it was all chopped up into firewood. I think they may have sold firewood that they took it out. It was month after month after month that Nellie was pulling the dead wood out because, of course, it's so much more tender. Uh, The live trees, they will in a hot fire just explode, but... If it's a low fire, you've got a better chance of it. The Wee Canyon Trail, which we know there's a slide that happened many years ago, and it cut off that for most people. An individual can navigate around it, but we haven't used it for hiking trails. Do you remember using, I mean, we knew it was the stagecoach, and how long did the stagecoach run up that? And then you probably rode your horses that way to get down to dry creek. We always had horse trails down there. That was our one-hour drive. <laughs> horse drive, our one-hour trail uh, ride, is that we would go down by the chapel, and then we would go down past the two muddy spots, there's the mineral springs, and uh, where that hairpin curve between the two muddy spots, it curves. Now there's a road that goes over to the wing, to a Sawmill Canyon. You can go over that way now, but that's where a rifle range was in that bend there. Uh, and then we go down and go across the stream and go all the way down to Dry Creek. And the narrow point for us was uh, where the shale is. And the shale was wide enough that you could get a horse across it. Not two, <laughs> just one horse across the shale. Uh, and it's hard to imagine how they could have put the four-horse road wide enough that the, that shale was taken back enough, and we're talking of picks and shovels, and maybe a little dynamite here and there. Did you guys ever ride your horses down to the, the town of Napa? Yeah, we didn't. Because there's always the legends of people hiking down into Napa and stuff. There was from early days of um, Rose Resnick and Lighthouse. There, Some of the ones that come to your uh, adult senior session, Joyce and others have talked about walking down uh, the the canyon trail, dry, dry Creek, Wing Canyon, and going to town that way on Sundays, and then eating a treat and then coming back. Absolutely correct us for having pizza and beer. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say it. I, <laughs> I, I covered it with a treat. Down Dry Creek Road to get into They mentioned that too, but it's just hard to imagine that they would do that. It's such a long walk that I wonder whether that's foggy memory or something. I don't know. It's it's just so much more direct to go. It seems to me down. Well, it's such a long walk to come back on Mount Peter. They would get picked up in oh, town. Oh, they did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see. Well, then maybe they did. Yeah. Maybe they did. They talked about a nine or ten mile. Of course, I, you know, I think about how you had complete access to this mountain before all yes. the fences came up. And so yeah. I always wondered, did they have access that way, too, before neighbors started putting up their fences? I think they, they talked about staying on the trail or the road and never heard about any cross-country. I was thinking as I went to sleep last night, uh, we're down in Napa uh, because to go to the Powa, um, that it, with the open land, 
sometimes when my father would come up uh, on Friday night and spend Saturday and Sunday up here, and, uh, he didn't direct camp until the last two years, 46 and 47, he's working for the federal government and war relocation um, and other projects for the federal government. He was in charge of the seven western states for land planning and water resources, basically in the field of, of relocation, and that's a separate subject. So he was very busy during the week, and that's when he did the Coast Guard during the war years out of San Francisco. But sometimes we would ride horses, my mother, my father, my sister, and me, and take off on a full moon night or maybe the night before or the night after when it came to a weekend uh, and just take off up Mount Peter. And we knew that if we just sort of went around here and around there through the forest, how to kind of go to this one particular place where people had made a big wood platform and they must have come and put sleeping bags on it or tents on it. And if you just kind of, yeah, that tree looks right and that looks right and it looks like we go down here and a little there, we would find it in the woods on the side of the mountain with this big, beautiful platform. And they had a great fire circle that wasn't near any trees and it was kept clean and it had the rocks around it. And so then we would tie up all our horses except Bugler and (laughs) drop Bugler's reins by Silver's hindquarters. Then we would roast uh, hot dogs and marshmallows and be out there at night under the stars. And I can remember they would like to be around the campfire and telling stories. In Hawaii, you call it tell stories. Um, let me say storytelling. And I would just love to lay out on that flat platform under the trees and look up at the stars and it was Douglas fir, and they would go way over in the wind at the top to one side, and then they'd come back and go over to the other side. And to me, that was the most lazy image to have, is those trees and just the stars and the moonlight, just glorious. Fabulous, yeah. <laughs> just a fabulous feeling. And then gather uh, everything up and our food things and put them in the saddlebags and ride back. To me, that was just glorious. And of course, one of the things that I feel is so precious about what you are directing and you are directing is that this land is enjoyed by so many people, thousands and thousands of people, and all the other land is private. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all gone from having like the access at the lodge, yes, there's still whatever, 16, 17 cabins. I don't know the range because the city's cut down on how many they will allow. Mm. And yes, people can rent them for $500 a month or something. But it's so exclusionary, and this is so beautiful. It's so lovely. It's so restorative. It, to me, it's my spiritual home, and I... I, I say I love it with everything in my being. But others feel that way and come too. Um, and that you allow that. And the, there's so many people who have met here and f- formed lifelong friendships. So many people on your staff who have met and married and have children and they'll have grandchildren. And that's been going on over all the years. Uh, the a lady that was the first one to help me at the Historic Society, Soder, uh, let's see, Soderholm, 
Dorothy Soderholm. She's Swedish, and my background on my mother's side is Soderblom. Uh, so we connected, and I found out early on as she was helping me make a, a record at the Historical Society for the site of Mount Vader in the Dry Creek watershed that she had been uh, a waitress at my at the lodge up on the hill, Lacoya Lodge, and she had met my father's horse wrangler, who was a handsome young man, and they dated that summer and married and had families. So even <laughs> though it was a boys' camp, it was still could create marriages here. Yes? Rick and I, behind the barn, there's that, must have been a reservoir down there, a water source, and there also there used to be a tennis court somewhere back there. I thought had a tennis court there. He put in a regulation tennis court. And I have now, as of last week or two, uh, and I brought it on a DVD where one of the counselors is teaching a couple of uh, campers, boy, the Lacoya Boys Camp campers, some uh, tennis on that tennis court. So we have a picture of it, and I watched my dad play tennis there. He was a very good tennis player. Uh, but there is, uh, but there is also that area was one of the areas where he had a septic system. We'd like to put a tennis court back there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not quite sure the location of the, but I would love to see where the tennis court was. But it's behind the barn. It would be level, and of course it had at the time large poles around it with wire mesh. Mm-hmm more accessible now after the goats have done all their work back there. Uh-huh. And there's some trees that are planted back there. So I was wondering if there was a garden that was created back in that area also. It looks like there's some fruit trees and such that were planted back there. Not that I'm aware of. I had a question about um, what we just talked about, fire, but that doesn't seem like the only um, act of nature out here that can be kind of challenging. I saw the pictures of the flooding I guess you spent most of your time here in the summertime, but did you experience any of we that? We did not have flooding, but then it didn't get backed up. Uh-huh. I think at that time, my father was very into make, making sure that the caretakers cleared the woods with Nellie, and uh, like you clean the streams out, and you do such a good job of it. It's just so perfect for this place. Blessings. Blessings, blessings. I'm pointing to all. Blessing there, blessing there, blessing there. Flood was 2009. It was New Year's Eve. Uh huh. I left the day before and I didn't get to see the flood. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was. And then, no matter how clean you made everything, it overwhelmed the works, you know, like Mother Nature can do, yeah. like as Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we felt like Japan kind of yeah. on a smaller scale because well, it, over- that, it completely that overwhelmed every <coughs> system for drainage we have here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had to have uh, bulldozers and stuff come in and reopen everything. Yeah. You can't plan for everything, but you can plan for some things. One of the things I think of that wasn't nature, but was odd to us, um, we heard a sound when we were in this beautiful old resort building that was called the inn, like a whooshing sound, very heavy whooshing sound coming in the distance. And my mother and I were so taken by it. I probably was maybe, I don't know, 
12 years old or something. I, um, maybe not quite that. And what is it? We've never heard it out here before. And this whooshing was coming at us, and we're standing on the porch facing the lake, and all the trees suddenly bent over like palm trees. And it went right in front of us, and all the trees bent over and bent over and bent over in front of us, going down uh, towards the Hogan and on past the Hogan. And then after a while, they all straightened back up again. And it was over. It was the blast that killed so many people at Port Chicago during World War II. Oh, yeah. that, wow. was the, that was the blast of air from that. It's a long way. Wow. That's a long way. And we had, of course, until we heard it on the radio, no idea what that was. Uh, and on the radio... My parents on a weekend. Or no, I don't know whether it was a weekend. My father was up here, and they were in the the bedroom uh, on the inn. I was in my bedroom across the way. The inn still, every bedroom had the metal door on it, uh, so uh, <laughs> it was still like an inn. They were having very serious talk in there. And I wonder what was wrong. What was wrong? There was something terribly wrong. You can know when your parents are having terribly wrong discussions. Mm-hmm. They had gotten the news of Hiroshima, talking about it. So I was told about Hiroshima and Nagasaki while I was up here. And then I was down by the pool, walking uphill, and I had come to the corral and somebody, I don't know who, came running down the hill yelling at the top of his lungs, the war is over. It's over. The war is over. It's over. Just such an amazing feeling Um, because, uh, you know, from my childhood, starting at, I guess, nine, when I went to school, I had to wear a dog tag so that if uh, I were killed at school that they could supposedly identify my body. So every day you put on your dog tag. I always had drills to go down in the basement uh, and lay on the floor. And when there were air raid drills, we had many air raid drills in the Bay Area in Berkeley, lots of them, and uh, never knew whether it was real or not. And all lights had to be out. Of course, we had rationing. One of the things that we did during the war was turn the whole parking lot area here that had been the vineyard into vegetable gardens. I have that all in my notes. The um, uh, effort was to grow as much food for the campers as we could because everybody that could have a victory garden uh, in their home or their apartment building was encouraged to do so. We had one in our backyard um, because... Everything was for the war effort. We, you, know, you were saving rubber bands. You were saving foil. You were saving fat from any uh, source that you could get it and putting it in tin cans and uh, turning it over to all the different ration boards. So um, we grew a lot of vegetables here uh, during World War II, which that was where the stream was. Rick, that you were cleaning out, that it could be, you know, watered. <laughs> but uh, so much of my 
grade school and into junior high were consumed with the war, and we did know that uh, that they were working on things like that. There, more than a thousand, I don't know how many, parachutes came over and lit fires in Northern California that were sent by the Japanese to try to uh, start forest fires. There were a lot of things that actually during the war we weren't told about. So to hear the war is over, the war is over was just like life was transformed. Was there a school up here on the mountain for the, the neighbors? Very interesting thing I've just been finding in the weeks and weeks I've been working on this recently is that in a lot of the history, this is not listed as Lakoya Boys Camp. It's list, listed as Lakoya School Home for Boys. So what was that? And one of the young men that was making a report on this for high school, I gave him all the brochures that he needed to know about the boys camp. I gave, it was 1947, uh, oral history to him. Instead of writing anything in his uh, a school paper about Lakoya boys camp, he didn't do that at all. He used the research his mother did for him at the uh, place where I'm researching now uh, on the deeds and uh, there is a mention of somebody getting uh, the um, fake business name uh, for Loakoya School Home for Boys Uh, and apparently in 1932 my parents were still trying to hang on to the property, trying to figure out ways to make money. And so uh, for uh, a few weeks after camp, my mother was cooking food here for people and trying to have people stay here uh, while the weather was still good and stay in the inn while the weather was still good and cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinners for people, families or whatever were coming up. But their idea then turned out, well, why don't we turn the inn building into uh, a a place where people could board their their sons and then the uh, van that picks up the children on the hill will take them down to Napa schools, bring them back, and whoever's putting on this uh, LaCoya School Home for Boys can use the inn kitchen to uh, cook meals on the big iron stove and the kerosene wick stove. And then there was a big dining area for Johannesburg that they could feed the boys. But I think with all the advertisement and with his getting the the right to use that name, some man that my parents never mentioned, but I have his name now and I have the printout of the uh, application. What do you call that when you uh, apply for a name that's not your real name? Doing business as yes, it's doing business as, and there's one other name for it too. That's that's good. That'll do. Um, I don't think it ever got off the ground. I don't think it ever happened. Um, it's something that's in the record books, but I don't think they ever signed up because if they did, it would have been in the letters that I've been reading from my parents. And they do have the letters about my mother cooking and have, trying to have people till October first staying up here to try to get some more money before they lost the property. Where is right now, there used to be a lodge there. Yes, and I just realized something uh, probably a month ago. Just so 
interesting is that this circle that you drive around here, this oval, that would be from Johannesburg. And there were rocks all the way around that. And I have pictures when I'm a child that there's rocks around that circle, that oval there. And that was a two-story resort. And the bottom story was where apparently they kept the wine and the food and the supplies. And you entered, the stagecoach would have come in here around that oval, turn, and come in on a second story up here. Mm. It was two-story. You can see by the photograph I have now that's just a glimpse between trees looking up from the Hogan. It was a two-story building with a railing around it so you could look out at the lake. They were using the top part as the inn with the, the eating and the dining and the view. And then I'm told that um, that one, uh, the bottom rotted out of it somehow and that they actually took the top story off of it and that the inn we were in was the top story of that inn. Oh, interesting. And the other inn was down uh, in the opening space where you drive down to, um, you could go down to the um, barbecue. That, that acrosswise was the other inn along the roadway there. So you could get out from the four-horse stage and get, go to the lodge there not where the um, Hogan is, because the Hogan was the, the place where the, the carriages were kept. And then there was one parallel to that, and it burned down, as, uh, because one burned and one rotted, and we were the top story. I've always been told we were the top story. I had thought the one on the bowling alley had burned down, but you had rotted out. Yes, and that's, yes, and so that makes sense, because they were getting in at this level on the top floor and so that's the one that would have the reception area and the kitchen and the bathroom and no there wouldn't be storage or things like that because it was the top floor hope a couple of small follow-ups you mentioned the plume smoke in 45 what started the fire the thought at the time was that somebody had thrown a cigarette out of a car window. A cigarette. One. Uno. Did you say where the fire originated from? Because I think that's the name of the fire. I've heard it. Would it ever have been called the Yonville Fire or was a name for that fire? I, you and I have always called it the Wing Canyon Fire. It's like the Wing Canyon, but I've heard some of the other fire folks use a different name for it. So it depends, I guess, where you were living when the fire hit. I'd love to know anything more you find out or you find out or you find out or anybody else finds out. I want to put it all in. And that's why I really haven't started, you know, trying to film or anything because I just keep gathering more information and finding a lot of the things that have been known are not true. <laughs> and I don't want to... to, to Put anything down in the writing or in the documentary until I have multiple sources that I have reason to believe. Yes, that makes sense. That that, and this just clicks as to why were we told that we were in the upper story of what had been moved? And I keep thinking, well, 
if it where was it? It was here. And that's why this is had the rocks around it. This was the destination. This house right here underneath us is what the weight room it had been the staff room. Was it ever used for anything else? Or do you remember when the, was it it was added on, I'm sure. It was added on after my parents were here. Uh, I don't know who did the kitchen, half the kitchen was added on. Only half the kitchen was here when my when we lived here. Half the living room, half the kitchen. It was always on stealth. Another couple of questions. Yes, please. Um, when you were in Berkeley during the year, mm-hmm. where was your home there? First of all, uh, when I was a small child, I was on Channing Way on the south side of campus. Then we moved over to north side of Cal campus by the Rose Gardens, mm-hmm. across the street from the Rose Gardens. Have yeah. you ever been to I, the Rose yes, Gardens? I, I live in Berkeley. Okay, yeah. so uh, the Rose Gardens. We lived uh, about three horses, uh, houses down and across the street, below that at Reservoir. So I used to play at Cordonesa's Park, and that was a Gunderson house. Um, then my mother got the kitchen remodeled there, and she was delighted with it in 1947 just the way she wanted it. And one night, while we were sitting at dinner, my sister, mother, and I, my dad says, you got to come with me. i got something to show you. And he says, it's a house. She said, but I like this house. We just got the kitchen fixed. It's got everything. It's got all the new coving on the floor and the new linoleum, and it's got the new refrigerator and stove, and the, the stoves were up on legs. But it was a gas stove. It was all modern. you got to see this house. you got to see it. So off they went. And that night they bought a house. And it was over where, do you know that, uh, where Claremont Avenue is and the Uplands uh, and Star Grocery perhaps is across from the Uplands? Yeah. And the next one towards Oakland is Hillcrest Road. Well, if you go right around Hillcrest Road, it turns into Hillcrest Court. And there's a house there, number two. And my father's favorite realtor, who he'd bought, numerous properties with and bought and sold and bought and sold and that's how he made himself back to being very wealthy after the depression and then he lost his money again and then he made it back again <laughs> and then he lost some of it again <laughs> and it was a roller coaster and uh, so Ray Sanderson was the realtor and his wife who he always called Lady uh, had just had a listing that day, and he says, it's going on the market tomorrow, you've got to see it. There was no lights in it, but I've got flashlights. We're going to go see it. And it was on a knoll, and the man had made his money, I think, in silver. It was in mining, and he bought uh, extra properties around there so that he could build on this knoll and then build two houses down on the street below with flat roofs so that he had perfect view from Vallejo, Marin County, straight across the Golden Gate Bridge down to San Mateo. Unobstructed view. And so he showed this 20-room, 12,000-square-foot house to my dad. And my dad liked big deals. Big! And he says it was either thirty or $33,000. And so the lady owning it had... But knew it was going to go on the market. She had four sons. They'd grown up. Her husband had died. She was at an opera in New York City, is my, the story I was told. 
And she said, well, we've got to sell a, send a telegram to her and say you got a deal and we're buying it before it goes on the market tomorrow. And so they did that. And they got the telegram back that night when she got out of the opera saying, you got it, close the deal. And so suddenly we were moving to the other side of town. <laughs> and uh, they lived there three, 33 years. And uh, they've added on to it in a way that I feel is unattractive because it, it was an English half-timber with six beautiful gables on it, and now they've kind of built on to one side because it wasn't big enough. <laughs> and so I think it kind of is lopsided now, but I think the last time it sold it was something like six million seven, something like that. So am I... Uh, my recommendation is buy real estate. <laughs> well, maybe that's, that's a lead into my, my last uh, question. But you mentioned real estate, and yes. of course we're here 62 years later because Rose Resnick came here. Yes. And I wondered if you could tell the first time you met Rose. I wanted to do that. that. That I wanted to do so much because Tony's responsible for all of this in that sense that he he saw my pictures that I had brought the cardboard pictures up here. I was working with um, Dorothy Soderholm and the um, Historical Society, so I had them with me. And uh, you said, oh, we need to have you come to our uh, 50th uh, celebration of um, the blind being here. And uh, so... She came that day, and we met for the first time. We had a wonderful visit out where you had uh, had people gather for your talk with a microphone and had all the people come up to speak. And afterwards, we sat there, and she and I talked. And it was fascinating to me because I had always thought it was plausible that she had come here because of all the years the Bay Area had blind and their families had come here. It was absolutely news to her. She had never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Never heard of it. Uh, and one, one of the things I find wrong in the records is that many records say it was a Boy Scout camp here. Rather than Boy Scouts for the blind had come here and stayed for free and used use the facilities. So this, this was news to her, news to me, that she didn't know nothing about it. And her... Oh, such a dear woman. She, what she said was, what I had done is I wanted to start a summer camp for blind, and I was looking with a realtor for possible places to have this camp. So he took me to one place that was a camp, and oh, it was absolutely not what I was looking for. Took me to another place, and it just wouldn't do at all. So, you know, not getting anywhere on this project. And then the third place, she came here and she said, I just fell in love with it. It was perfect. It it had everything I needed. I could start from day one. It had the dining hall. It had the beds. It had the mattresses. It had the tents. It had, you know, the ball field, the rec field. It had the swimming pool. It had the shower houses. It had everything I needed. It was perfect. And to me, that just, what do you say, warm your heart or something? That my father had established from a private property that would have undoubtedly been divided up like all the other properties around here into individual private either residences or wineries, that she came, it was perfect for her, and 
the tr- tradition could go on. To uh, it's a place of renewal and replenishment and friendships and marriages and uh, just a gift of self-esteem, of belonging, of comradeship, skills, nature. We weren't evolving to the life that we have now uh, with children growing up on city streets and Macadam. Nobody knows Macadam, I guess, anymore. Poor man. Blacktop used to be called Macadam because he was the one that invented it. And now he, his, his name in perpetuity is no longer. <laughs> yeah, Macadam. We always called it Macadam. I don't know how it went to Blacktop. Uh, Browns Valley Road in town has a monument to the first Macadam Street that was built uh, in that area on the side of the road. Yeah, you've seen it. It's uh, nice. It's easy to read. <laughs> yeah, just a nice parking there and you get out and read it. <laughs> uh, some more questions? Well, I mean, the big question is uh, you have a longer memory than anyone else here. Yeah. Where would you like to see this place 80 years from now in the year, wow, that's going to be in the year uh, 2200? Where, where do you want this? I, I would like to see Lighthouse for the Blind be increasingly successful because I envision that with more and more preemies being Saved, there are more and more with various kinds of birth defects. If you say defect, it's in other words, a, it's some sort of a, a disability that needs to be uh, managed. And uh, we are saving more and more people's lives at the other end of the spectrum. And glaucoma and cataracts and so many other things that are uh, visual impairments come. Uh, to the elderly. My father, after all his interest in the blind, when he was 62, had a stroke in his right eye. And it had to be removed. And he had um, a a glass eye, they used to call it. So um, (laughs) it came around to the fact that he was visually impaired because he had no death perception anymore. And always wore a prosthesis that uh, looked like an eye. But uh, they're more and more elderly, and they will have visual impairments. And then it's for multiply handicapped. And we can keep people alive with all sorts of things, whether it's pacemakers or whatever it is, uh, that this is a safe place. This is a place where they can be with other people, that they're normal (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, it's the new normal for them, um, and that everybody has handicaps. Uh, everybody, whatever it is, um, things that other people can do that they can't do, and this is just such a perfect place to come and be renewed uh, in nature. And nature is something that we have evolved to need. We need nature. We need to have the quiet. We need to have that wonderful smell that comes off the trees when the heat of the day comes and that wonderful, wonderful pungent odor of the redwoods and the 
Douglas Fir and all the others that just exude this renewing nature's perfume. Um, I just wanted to continue to be a land where public can come in and that it's, I like the fact that it has not gone the way that uh, the lodge went after my father, that's another story, uh, was no longer a part of the lodge. They went to having a bar and uh, drinking and things like that. Of course, as a Quaker, my father (laughs) didn't believe in that. He, he finally gave in when he was quite elderly that he would drink tea of a certain kind before he went to bed to help him sleep. Mm. He gave in. He gave in. He drank tea. <laughs> no, no coffee. Ugh. You know, no, of course, never smoke. Um, he did say he thought God forgave him when he was very angry that he swore sometimes. <gasps> He did swear. <laughs> but my dream would be that, that Lighthouse and all involved with it just grows. That it's something that it helps more and more people, that it gets to so many people uh, supporting it with their uh, gifts that when they die, they give gift their money to the lighthouse uh, that they can, you know, get money during their lifetime on their investment for the lighthouse to then have it afterwards. That It's so well established that it, it will just continue into the future, and it needs to be fire protected. The redwoods can make it. The redwoods that were burned in the fire, they were just like... Um, extremely tall telephone poles and had no branches and were absolutely black. And by next spring, were there branches growing out all the way up those black telephone poles because the uh, bark has such an asbestos-like quality to it. So there will be redwoods. But I would like to have so much money accumulated that if it ever burned, it can be built back. And it'd have to have the buildings back, but the nature will eventually replenish itself. It, it is still scarred very, very much, as Tony knows, all the nature walks I've taken from out behind the kiva down to the chapel. And on one side, it's this multi-layered forest, uh, Brian, that it has a stream in it, and you start with the ferns and the woodwardia and all of the little flowers that bloom, the roses and the iris, and there's so many... Uh, lantern bells, honeysuckle that grow on that side, and it goes on up from the hazelnuts and the uh, wine vine and on up to uh, multi-tiered forest to the top of the uh, redwoods and the Douglas fir. Uh, it has so much life in it. It has deer in it and birds in it. and uh, They have porcupines up here. I found you know, when you find a quill here, you know it. <laughs> uh, and on the other side, it's still desolate and because the trees grew up too fast and made an umbrella. And the umbrella cut the light out. And the multi-tiered forest, the light comes beaming down through so that every, everything needs its place in the sun. And um, the other side has to die out. Once that heavy growth that went up after the fire dies out, it'll have a new chance. And 
this forest is a forest that doesn't replenish well from fire, except for the redwoods. Uh, whereas uh, forests in the south uh, that are pine forests, they, they need fire. That, that replenishes them. That's not here. And we have lightning. One time my mother, sister, sister and I were riding just up the hill from here. Uh, that's another story in a lightning storm trying to get back. And just a few feet from us, a tr- uh, tree, uh, that was a fir, was big. One was split right down the middle by a lightning bolt. Ah, that was loud. And yes, it was at the the, the light and the thunder was at the same time. Uh, so there's always that danger. But I would I would wish that there would be um, so many people that have benefited by this so much that the money would be there to be drawn upon whenever needed so that it could be replenished, be rebuilt, um, be restored. And and it's always, Rick knows, always having to restore, like the beams that he restored on the dining hall and the breezeway ceiling that you restored. You're always having, nature wants to take this back. And you're trying to prevent that. And you're in in this <laughs> conflict with Mother Nature. And that's one of the things. Yeah, she's tough. That road that it ends where you park. That's all forest, and that was a, a nice wide road. That I I've tried to walk that and see it. Have I, I've, you? I've been looking for that ever since you told me that was there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm there's trees now, so it's hard to tell where it was. But I've walked that. There was a, a cabin up there in the apple orchard was that was there, that burned in the fire. And when I used to ride my horse up that way, I I was intrigued by the the window glass that had been in that little building and it was accordion back and forth and back and forth and back and forth as the as the glass had melted oh onto the ground one of the things that we used to tease about in the lodge when my dad was there there was a big fireplace puts this one behind me to shame it was so big and it was stone and it went up about three stories with the chimney and he had a huge opening to it and people would ask what is the, are those purple uh, glistening balls above the fireplace and the the tale was to tell people that they were petrified grapes <laughs> have i told you that story yeah it was a big this it looked like a beautiful petrified grapes and it was um, uh, my family had been in San Francisco during the earthquake and after the fire they had found um, that was a clump of um, purple we used to call the marbles glassies that had been in a bag and they had melted together in the bag of the purple glassy marbles that looked just in the shape of a big bunch of grapes and they had mounted it over the fireplace in the stones we had one of the other things from the San Francisco fire that in San Francisco to let light into some of the basements in the sidewalks they have little glass squares to let the light in we had one of those and it melted down into a big drip and it was people would say that's what if bills collectors come to the door. <laughs> so that's my, my wish for the future is that it never goes to private. It never is farmed. 
it's um, to farm hearts and minds of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody's disabled in things when they're not here, but when you come here, you're not disabled in anything. Mm-hmm. You feel whole. And um, I can remember somebody saying that uh, everybody's like a gingerbread cookie, and they have holes cut out of them from the damages that mostly people have done in their lives to them, and that you need to be able to get to a place where you can find good raw dough, and you can put it in those holes, Mm -hmm. those slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and fill up the holes and fill up the soul. To me, this place fills people's soul, and it certainly fills mine. Thank you for listening and asking such wonderful questions. I... I really have a a dream to save the history because the Indians, it was all oral history. And they were looked down on like slaves by the Westerners. And they were indentured or killed and uh, made to be slaves on the farms and in the missions. And thought down on. Uh, And yet the Westerners did not learn the language of the Indians. They did not learn how to, uh, the hundreds of plants that were usable here, they just plowed them under. And the Indians were the ones learning Spanish and learning English and learning all the Western ways of how to plow the fields and run the kitchens. They were the ones that were learning all these tens of thousands of years of knowledge. It wasn't the white people that were learning what they could from the Indians. Uh, so oral history went away because it was drummed out of them. And it's very hard to retrieve much of it. And uh, I think that oral history is, it's an alive history rather than reading a book. And mm-hmm. books are good. Yeah. This one was in, um, actually it was in uh, the Veterans Home in Rayotville. This was the 19th year. Um, they mostly had dancing. They had very little history. I just got in contact about 10 days ago with Joyce Bowen, and uh, she lives over on, um, is it Trinity that goes the other way from Oakville, uh, in a, a very wild wilderness area. And she used to have Bonaventure Balloon Co- Company. I've been up in ballooning with her. Uh, she knows a lot about the Indians and supported that museum for quite some time with her efforts. And she was also on the Dry Creek Watershed uh, Fire Group down at the fire station. So she has a lot of Indian history that she's looked up in the decades that she's lived here. And she's uncovered a lot of tools and things. So we're going to get together. And I'm looking for people, and like some I may meet this afternoon, uh, that have bits and pieces of it to try to restore it. Because uh, Charlie Toledo, who, uh, of course, we were chatting quite a bit yesterday and um, day before, uh, she's from the southwest. She's not from here. And um, the Indians that I talked to uh, have Indian blood uh, over the weekend. None of them were for, from here, uh, from Maine, as far as way as Maine. And so the, what they're talking about is different histories. It's the histories yeah. of the Pomos or the history of, you know, other tribes. So... Um, 
is to find the history of these people who were here. Um, and there were two, two big waves of, of Native Americans. There were the ones that came tens of thousands of years ago across the Bering Strait when it was um, solid land and the oceans were in uh, ice age, ice. Um, and then there were others that followed. And I think that the oldest that's been estimated here is 10,000 and more continuous. But I need more information on that. Uh, and the Wintun, were, uh, there's Wintun and Wintu, um, were one of the latter groups that came here. But they seem to be all quite peaceable in this area because there was so much food. Mm -hmm. There just was so much to eat. And I have come across just uh, in the last couple of months a list of pages and pages and pages of plants identifying what was here and what they used and how they used it. Was it food? Was it medicinal? Was it building? Was it tool making? Was it cording? Uh, was it rafting? They really knew it, and that has been lost. We'd love a copy of that list. Yes, I thought I might do it somehow. It's very, very small type in the back of a book that I'd make it bigger and put it, uh, glue pages together so I could make a scroll that is big enough that I, then I could, with the video, you know, begin to unroll this scroll that just somehow maybe keeps rolling down and rolling down and rolling down and rolling down. They used poison oak for a number of things. And of course, they didn't have horses, so they walked. They walked over to the coast. They walked over this Mayakamas range. I don't know whether you'd like it or not, but yesterday Charlie gave me a picture of a mountain lion. And uh, the, the Mayakamas range, which divides, of course, the Napa Valley from the Santa Rosa uh, Valley, uh, Mayakamas means howl of the mountain lion. And it's a big picture of wow. a mountain lion. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe one of the cabins might be nice to have a mountain lion. It's a fairly big picture. And also, if it would actually be preserved, have a picture of the lake from about 1929 that I'd love to donate. Uh, These things are priceless. It's a sepia-colored, when my father was first having pictures taken, of the lake when when the dam, uh, the road just going down at the, to the dining hall um, was all um, willow trees, huge willow trees. And, of course, that was good to preserve the dam so the dam wouldn't leak. And it was a wonderful shade. And I would propose that the lake be drained uh, and that uh, it, it, so that you use the stop in August on the year you pick and divert that stream to, uh, over to Rick's uh, side let it dry hard get a you know have a pickup truck get a um, a sizable scoop and scoop it out um, and start anew because it that's why it has so much stuff growing on it and it will fill in it will be a meadow and it needs to have its edges scooped out and then I would put some cattails around here to filter the water. And I put um, new one or two or three 
uh, willow trees on the island and see if they're planted before a winter, whether they could grow again. Because it's so appropriate to have a tree that wants water on its roots. Most trees drown. The preceding material is owned and distributed by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco, California. To obtain permission to use this content for classes or other uses, please contact us at publications at lighthouse-sf.org. Or to learn more about the Lighthouse, visit our website at www.lighthouse-sf.org.